Good morning again. We are reading from the book of Colossians, the letter Paul to the Colossians. My name is P.J. Ryan. I'm an elder here serving at uh, Calvary. We will be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Read with me together. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, PJ. I would encourage you guys to kind of stay there in Colossians chapter 1. Today we'll kind of be bouncing around just a little bit in the book of Colossians, and today we essentially introduce this book. That's only four chapters. But the length of the book of Colossians does not resemble its depth in any way, shape, or form. Today, my goal is twofold, is number one, to introduce the book of Colossians, and number one, just to uh, excite us about studying this book. And quite frankly, I didn't, there's, there's several reasons why preachers pick particular books or topics or sermon series. And the most common one that I try to use is just the need of the congregation itself but quite frankly, I didn't choose to study the book of Colossians for any of you. Um, so I, I just, the reason I wanted to study the book of Colossians is because of the truth that it contains. If you have known me personally for some time, then you know I've been talking about the book of Colossians for like six months. And it's just um, a, a wonderful book. We see, and I, I need to stop before I get before I go too far in this. But we see in chapter one this just beautiful treatise of the gospel. It, we see the most, in my opinion, the most complete, while most concise treatment of the gospel. And then we see in chapters two and on the application of the gospel. So today is really my goal is to introduce this book, is to lay a foundation for our discussion over the next fifteen, sixteen weeks in this book, and really to help us kind of get our heads behind it. And the title of my sermon today is is this, is what you believe really matters. That what you believe really does matter. And that's what we see in the book of Colossians today. We pour out our foundation. We prepare the soil for the next 15 weeks. But let me just ask you the question here this morning. Um, how many of you are homeowners in the room? All right, so you know what I'm about to talk about. Okay, so how many would testify that owning a home is both a blessing and a curse? Can I get an amen? And depending on your home, how much of which it is, okay, all right, all right, that's probably true. But what, what, are, what are the different components of a house? You tracking with me? What are the different parts of a home? Foundation, good. I already talked about, yep, that's right. What else? What's up? The roof, good. The roof, if the roof is bad, it will ruin everything, right? What else? The framing, good. What else? Doors. Doors. 
windows. You're missing the kitchen, floors. You're leaving one out. Plumbing, hopefully you all have it in your home, okay? Alright, what else do you have? Electrical, lights. There are a ton of different components to a home, but if one particular component is wrong or is broken, all of that is worthless. You know, you could have a gold-plated driveway. You could have crystal chandeliers. You could have leopard print wallpaper. You could have a 10-foot flat screen. You could have an in indoor heated pool you could have shag carpet out of right out of the 70s i guess all right but none of that matters if one thing is broken a few years ago while laura and i were living in dallas texas we met we met a man named andy and he was a newly married guy he had a couple of kids and he we knew him in seminary and he bought this beautiful house, man. It was in the suburbs of Dallas. It was a wonderful neighborhood. It was a n- nice plant, had plenty of room, nice backyard, nice patio. It, I mean, it had nice carpet. It had everything you would want in a home. But you know where this is going. Okay. And then about a year after he bought that house in this great location, in this wonderful suburb, in this great neighborhood, everything going, good schools. And then after about a year after he bought it, Right in the middle of his kitchen, the slab completely broke. And what started out like a little crack in the middle of his kitchen, by the time I was involved in his life, okay, it turned into the Grand Canyon of houses, okay? And I remember he, this crack was moving so much that he didn't even bother replacing the flooring in the kitchen. Why bother? Because the house was moving so much. So whenever I would visit his home, what would I see? I would go to the kitchen and you would literally see the Grand Canyon right in the middle of his home, okay? Anybody else just cringing right now? Alright? Ooh, it's painful. Okay, just to think. And I remember just talking to Andy. I mean, he would spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands trying to fix this foundation. And all of a sudden, what? That the house didn't matter as much, the driveway didn't matter as much, the neighborhood, the room, the backyard, the roof, the windows, the drywall, that none of that mattered. All he was concerned with was the foundation that was broken. Today, we lay a foundation of our time in the book of Colossians, and like a foundation, it is the most important part of a house, but it's oftentimes the part of a house that no one looks at. I mean, no one ever argues, and no one ever buys a home for the color of the foundation. You track it with me? No one ever picks out, okay, I want to paint my foundation green or orange or yellow. We, it's hidden, it's, it's something we do not see, but it matters tremendously. That's what we see today in the book of Colossians. It's the foundation. It's the part of our time in the book of Colossians that matters most, but often we just do not pay attention to it. We lay out the biblical background of this book. But many people, when they start a new book or a new series, they just kind of, what do they do? You know, they they just kind of jump into the book. They jump into a particular passage, and they don't lay out foundation. So they build this beautiful home of experience and knowledge and emotions and excitements of a book they uh, but if they haven't unpacked the biblical background of the book itself a lot of the cracks in the foundation will show itself as they walk through but so today is really 
probably the most important out of all the messages in the book of Colossians that we'll spend for, spend with for like the next four years. Um, but it's the least pretty, you know. It's the least nice to look at. It's the ugliest part. It's, but it is essential. Why is understanding the biblical background of each book before you study it essential to the book? I mean, think about it. The Gospel of John is written to who? We think that it's written to Christians. It ain't. That's good Alabama talk right there, okay? It ain't. It's written to who? It's written to skeptics, people that are trying to figure out who this Jesus guy really is. That's why when you go through the Gospel of John, he repeats himself again and again and again and again and again. Okay, all the I am statements, chapters 5 through chapters 11, all seem like the same. He's proving something. What is he proving? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that these things have been what? Written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. If you don't understand that basic point, understanding the whole Gospel of John is going to be really difficult. I mean, think about the book of Philippians. Why is it important to understand that background? What is the book of Philippians all about? It's about what? Cairo. It's about joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And Paul is not writing the book of Philippians from the beach, okay, in Destin, Florida. It's wonderful for us to talk about the joy of the Lord from the beach of the mountains, amen? Okay, right, amen? Track with me? It's great on vacation. But Paul writes the book of Philippians from where? From prison, awaiting trial before Nero. You think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation makes a lot more sense if you understand that the majority of what he talks about in that book is are things to come, right? So understanding the biblical background of a book is absolutely critical to understand that book. And just for the book of Colossians, as I've already said, it's just um, it's fastly becoming one of my favorites. Because what we see in the book of Colossians is a one of the most complete and concise treatises of the gospel of anywhere in the New Testament. I'm going to read it. And forgive me if, if you are visiting here today, uh, maybe you're wondering what's going on. <laughs> but today we're just laying the foundation. I want you to appreciate this book like I do. Verse 13. This is why I wanted to preach the book of Colossians, this passage. Just Look at. For he, who's the he here? For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. What is he talking about? What does that mean? He is the head of the body. He is the authority of the church, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that result. He himself will come to have first place in everything. 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, Isaiah 53, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you, notice the change in pronouns, he's talking about he, the he in verse 13 in my opinion is the father, and the he in verse 15 through 20, verse 20 is Christ, and then he changes pronouns, you track it with me, you, you follow me, and although you, wait, who's he talking to? We'll get into that in just a minute. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. Notice that piece. We'll talk about why that's important through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Can anybody say amen to that one? Dude. That is the book of Colossians. That is the most complete while being the most concise treatment of the gospel in all the New Testament. So we are going to begin this study. And so today, really, we lay the foundation. It is the biblical background to kind of give you the components of the biblical background, like the foundation itself. You prepare the land, you mix the concrete, you lay the concrete. The the six main components of biblical background are, number one, the author, number two, the location of writing, number three, the date, number four, the audience, the unique characteristics, and the purpose for its writing. So the first thing is, who actually wrote the book of Colossians? Now, before you all say, duh, okay, and just totally tune me out, I want you to actually see what Paul says about himself. You tracking with me? Paul. Wait. Okay, we know that Paul wrote this book, but what do we know about him? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. First, we see the word Paul or Paulos. His original name was Saul, converted to Paul. And notice what he calls himself, an apostle. The word apostle there in the original language is apostolos, which means sent one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, many of us think that that's Jesus' first and last name, okay? And to be, let's just be honest here. Even if you know that not to be true, we kind of take it as that because we hear it all the time. Am I, am I the only one? We say Jesus Christ, and don't even think about its theological significance. First off, let's look at the word Jesus here. The word Jesus is the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. So you think about what Paul, Paul an apostle of Joshua. That's a, probably a pretty common name in the first century, especially among Jewish culture. As a matter of fact, it's so common that somebody else in the book of Colossians is called Jesus or Yeshua. Chapter 4, verse 11. And they rename him Justice, I guess not to confuse the guy. Okay. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been here at Calvary for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about the word Christ, and I'm going to go ahead and revisit it in its entirety. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it is rather a designation of who he actually is. A first century Jew, when they would read this, and if they were not a believer in Jesus Christ, they would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, okay. And they would get to this word named Christ, and that word would just kind of explode off the page, 
Why? What is Paul signifying by the word Christ? That Jesus is what? If y'all, if y'all don't know. He is what? The, the Messiah. The word Christ there in the original language is Christos, which means the anointed one. So Jesus, this Joshua guy that was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who was sacrificed in Jerusalem on a cross, who was buried, raised again, and ascended into heaven. That that guy named Joshua is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. But why is that important? You know? It's because to the first century Jew, they have been looking for the Messiah since the beginning of time itself. That the Messiah, the promise of the anointed one, comes in the very first time after the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Messiah, the anointed one, will be the seed that comes from the woman who will bruise his heel on the head of the serpent. And as we go through the Old Testament, what do we see? We see that the picture of the Messiah becomes clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And and we amaze ourselves that the Jews in the first century completely missed Jesus. Can we, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy because they had Isaiah 53. We already read it. I intentionally read that because I knew we were going to talk about this today. We see prophecy after prophecy that he comes from the seed of the woman that he is a descendant of abraham that he will rule on the throne of david forever that he is a type or he is the lamb of god who is represented in the old testament in the book of leviticus at a lamb that is without blemish or spot that only a lamb in the old testament that was without spot or blemish could atone for the sins And that is a picture of Christ. Jesus is the suffering servant. We know that Jesus will be born of a virgin, born in the town of Bethlehem. We know that the Messiah will be prophet, priest, and king. And that is just the tip of the iceberg, you know. That as these Jews live in the first century, and as they look at the Old Testament, the picture of the Christ... The Messiah becomes clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And then all of a sudden Christ comes and the Jews completely reject him. So when Paul is writing this, he says, I am sent on behalf of Jesus, who is the Messiah, by the will of God. By the will of God. One of the things I take this to mean right here, we could, we could talk about it, theologically debate it and afterwards. By the way, we're just going to spend all of our time in chapter 1 and chapter 2. All of the, pretty much all of the biblical background can be found in these two verses. So we see by the will of God. I take that to mean by the will of the Father. You could take this in a Trinitarian viewpoint, but I see it as the will of the Father. Why do I say that? It's because of verse 13. We see in the book of Colossians the, the role of the Father as the director of redemption. So Paul is sent out on behalf of Jesus, who is the Messiah, by the will of the Father and Timothy, our brother. But let us just answer the question, you know, what do we know about Paul? Now, now before you, just hang in there with me. I want you to unpack Paul and his life. Because if you understand him as the author, if you understand how he grew up, it makes so much more sense of the message of Colossians and what he writes about. Who was Paul? Paul was born in a city called Tarsus into a prosperous 
Orthodox Jewish family. He was taught uh, by the rock star of all rock star Pharisees named Gamaliel. And Paul was a young man. He was so zealous for the Judaistic faith, for the faith of the Torah and the Old Testament, that he persecuted the way, the early church. What does it say? I think it's the book of Acts chapter 8 that Paul was holding the coats of those who stoned the first martyr, Stephen, and he gladly approved of it. Then Paul, this young man named Saul at the time, and we know as Paul, he's, handing, he's holding the coats, and he's staring in approval of the martyrdom of the first martyr named Stephen. And then what does he do? He goes from there, and he travels to a city north in northern Israel called Damascus. And what happens on that road? Christ manifests himself to Paul converts him to the faith, and then Paul spends the next 30 years of his life dedicated to Jesus, who is the Messiah, by the will of God. But the more important question we have is this. Not just what is Paul's background, but how does Paul's background shape his letters? How do they shape his letters? Can I just speak in the room? Um, You don't have to raise your hand to this. But I, I'm sure at one point in time, you've probably struggled with legalism. I mean, am I the only one here? Okay. I mean, we all struggle to a degree of legalism. Why? Why do Christians, born-again believers, struggle with rules and regulations? It's because what? They feel. It's not even they know. But they feel that the blood of Christ is not sufficient. That there's something that I have to do in order to feel right before God. Does anybody else relate to that one? I mean, so we have Paul. He struggles as a Pharisee with legalism. He struggles with rules. You see this unfold in his letters. The the topic of circumcision in the in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, you see it again and again, this legalistic understanding of people. They're trying to feel good enough. Which is why what? Which is why Paul talks about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. That there's nothing we can do to ever earn our way to heaven. Amen? It doesn't matter what you do. It's a matter of what he did. Amen? You track it with me? And by faith, we accept it as a gift of God. The sufficiency of Christ is a topic we see in all of Pauline literature in Colossians is not excluded. Chapter 1, verse 21, if you have that. I'm not going to have it on the passage or on the TV. Chapter 1, verse 21, says this, And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless beyond reproach. Christ's sacrifice as the Messiah on the cross predicted in Isaiah 53, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. Amen. What is the date? When did he write it? Well, the mention of Timothy, and Timothy, our brother, tells us that it's after, I believe, Acts chapter 16, where Timothy is introduced. Timothy is half Greek, half Jew. If you know Timothy's story, he is a disciple of Paul. And so we would place the date of this book at 61 AD. Why is that significant? That the book of Acts is already done. 
Alright? We're on Acts 29. Acts chapter 30. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, okay? So the book of Acts has already taken place. All of the events and trials are in the past. And where does Paul write this book from? The location of writing is from prison in Rome. There are four prison epistles in the New Testament. You have Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and a book called Philemon. How did Paul... This is, once again, we're laying the foundation. This is all the biblical background of this book. So hang in there with me. Okay. So how did Paul end up in Rome in prison? Acts chapter 25, verse 11. What does Paul do? Paul is a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar for trial. So then because he appeals to Caesar, he is transported from Israel all the way to Rome to hold trial before Nero, the emperor, So that is how Paul ends up in prison. They say that he was there for about two years. And in that two-year period, he wrote those four epistles. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, from this we see the date, we see the location. Well, actually, we don't see the location of writing, but we can discern it. We see the author. But then who is the audience? Now, before we say the church in Colossae, which is true, notice this. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's more than just the church in Colossae. What does he say? It's written to the saints, the holy ones. That word in the original language is is related to the word holy. It means the holy ones are set apart. Those who what? Those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And have been born again, who have been made right before God because the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. Amen. So the saints and, notice this part, faithful brethren. You know, we skip that. But that word right there is huge. The word in the world is adelphois. It means brothers and sisters. It means a family. So Paul is talking to those believers in Jesus Christ, which is why he arranges the material the way he does. But he's also talking to his family. What's interesting, too, about this epistle is that you'll see as we go through that Paul probably has never visited this this church. It was church planted by Epaphras, which is his disciple. It's pastored and planted by this guy named Epaphras. And Paul has never likely visited this church, but he still calls them family. I was, um, I was talking to a friend this week, a brother in Christ, brother from another mother. And, um, he, and I just said to him, you know, a lot of the issues in churches today would resolve themselves if we viewed one another as family. Can I say that again? Many of the problems in churches today would resolve themselves if we viewed one another as family. The person to your left, the person to your right, the person in front of you, the person behind you, as long as they are a believer in Jesus Christ, they are part of your spiritual family. Can I speak for just a second? What do you do with family? When you have a problem, okay, when you have a problem with family, first off, you're stuck with your family, right? You can't change brothers. You can't change them like shirts, okay? They either are or they're not, okay? So when you have a problem with family, what do you do? You don't, you don't run. That's called 
dysfunction. Okay, you tracking with me? All right, you you work out your problems. Yeah, you might be angry and you might be mad and you might resent your brothers or your sisters, but you work it out because you're stuck with them. All right, it makes it real awkward around Christmas and Thanksgiving time. Okay, that is the way we see church, friends. I think church would be totally different if we actually viewed the people in this room as our brothers and sisters. What do most people do? Can I just step on thin ice for just a second? What do most people do when they have conflict in a church? They run, (laughs) all right? They run, which tells you what? It tells you how they view other people in the church. I will say that I admire, I respect people that have issues in the church and they stay and they work them out because it shows their mentality, but it also shows maturity. There's this group of uh, people that migrate like geese around Huntsville, Alabama. You might track with me. And they just kind of float from church to church to church whenever they don't kind of get their way. And it's a sizable migration. But friends, listen, to the saints, to the believers, and the faithful brothers and sisters, we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If we have issues, forgive. If you have issues, talk about it. So what else do we know about this city or church in Corinth? So verse 1 and verse 2 are really the biblical background. Just to make it quick, because time is getting away from me. It has flown today. So we see Epaphras is most likely the church planter and also the pastor of the church. What's interesting also is that the person who takes the letter from Rome back to Colossae, which is a modern-day Turkey, Colossae is about 100 miles to the east of Ephesus, the Aegean Sea. So it's in the heart of a mountainous region in modern-day Turkey. What's interesting, though, the person that takes the letter from Paul in Rome to Colossae are two people. This is one named Tychicus and the other person named Onesimus. Onesimus, that rings a bell, doesn't it? He is the runaway slave from the house of Philemon. Philemon is a wealthy landowner belonging to the church of Colossae, and his slave named Onesimus ran away from Colossae, happened to go all the way to Rome, meet this guy named Paul, becomes converted, and Paul sends him back to his master with two letters of the New Testament. That is crazy. I mean, could you imagine walking from here to Dallas, Texas, and coming back with two books of the Bible? Okay, I'm just saying... It's amazing how the Lord has ordained, has worked out this story in the book of Colossians. What are its unique characteristics? This is in your notes. It's Christology. What else? In chapter 1, primarily. What else makes it unique? It's, it's language and style. There are 34 words in the book of Colossians that aren't used anywhere else in the New Testament. But what's also interesting about this letter is this letter was not just written to the church in Colossae, but also written to two other cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea, they're both nearby cities, about 10 to 12 miles away from the city of Colossae. Does Laodicea ring a bell? Revelation chapter 3, it is the church that says that you are, since you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is the church of Colossae. What also makes it unique, number four, is its theology compared to its application. If you know 
the book of Romans. Then chapters 1 through 11 is the theology. Chapters 12 through 16 is the application. The book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 is the theology. Chapters 4 through 6 is the application. And Colossians, the only theology, well not the only, but the primary doctrine of that book is just found in chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. And then the application is from chapter 2, verse 6 to the end of the book. So you have this much application with this much theological content. It's interesting the difference of the two. But why did Paul write this part number two? And I'm going to fly through this. Number one was to stabilize the church. Number two was to clarify the truth. I believe from the content of the book of Colossians that we see this undercurrent, this ancient church heresy of Gnosticism boiling up. Gnosticism means having knowledge. It's the first century primary church heresy. It teaches that all flesh is evil. Number two, it teaches that you attain salvation by a hidden knowledge from a hidden deity. That's a huge problem for Christianity. Both of those. Why? Well, if all flesh is evil, then what? Then Christ's flesh flesh was insufficient. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 21, And though you were formerly alien and hostile, engaged in evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. I feel like Paul is purposely combating the, the lies of Gnosticism that is beginning to boil up in the first century church. But number two... Gnosticism teaches that salvation is not uh, from salvation through Christ, but from hidden knowledge. And we see that the gospel is not meant to be hidden, but is made made known as bearing fruit all around the world. Verses 4 through 6. The right view of Christ is this, that God became flesh, and that he bore our sins in his flesh, paid for our sin in full by the blood of the cross to satisfy the just demands of God to fulfill the redemptive plan of the Father and that salvation is not hidden or even based on knowledge, but is based on faith. It is not what you know that saves you. It is what you believe and in whom you believe that saves you. Amen. So Paul wrote this letter to stabilize the church, to clarify the truth, and then number three, to clarify the living out of the truth. The living out of the truth. The question I have, and I'll wrap up with this, is so what? You know, to be perfectly honest, um, I, I don't have an application that says, I want you to do that, X, Y, and Z. This is really what I want you to do. This is the point of the book of Colossians, is what you believe really does matter. The right beliefs yield right behaviors. The right beliefs in chapter 1 about Christ, that his sacrifice was sufficient, yields right behaviors. Chapter 2, verse 6 through the end of the book. So we see in in its finest elements that this is the central premise of the book of Colossians. That the right doctrine, the right beliefs, yield right behaviors. Would you guys agree with that? If you have... The right behaviors, it reveals that you believe the right things, but if you have wrong behaviors, it reveals that you believe wrong things. So all that is interconnected. This is what I want you to do this week, is I just want us as a church to kind of prep 
for the book of Colossians. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. May there not be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. What I'd like to do is this. This week, take Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and just read it through every day this week. And just begin to examine yourself. Because what I hope happens is this. That as we go through this book, we will be confronted with the truth. And we will replace the lies that we believe with the truth of God's word. And then that will shape our lives forever. So what I'm encouraging you to do is just examine your own personal life, your own relationship with God and, and just get right for the book of Colossians and prep yourself for it. And I would also encourage you to read Colossians cover to cover. It's pretty awesome. Before I close, I have two minutes. If you do not know Christ Jesus as Savior, if you are not born again, if you're not part of the family of God, if you have maybe thought you were saved, prayed a prayer and you were saved, but if you've never been changed, if you've never been born again, can it... Can, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can't be the same. You can't. The only way we know of people in the Gospel of John that came to Christ is not by the prayer that they say, it's by the lives that are changed. Zacchaeus, he wasn't in John. But you look at the Samaritan woman at the well, Nicodemus, and so forth and so on. We see their lives. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be changed. If you have never surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, he offers you what? The gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. For you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. If you have questions about what it means to have a relationship with God, feel free to see me after this service. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, just the truth of your word and just understanding the foundation so that we can see it for all it's worth. Um, but Lord, I do pray that in chapter 1 especially, that when we are confronted with true, sound doctrine, that we would not just sock it away as something that I know, but something that changes our lives as we, as we will see in chapters 2, 3, and 4, that we would walk in you, that we would love people, that we would love you in return, that would make your name known among all people, that we would be lights to the world. Lord, thank you for your word. It is a two-edged sword. It changes our lives. And may we be receptive to the power of your spirit speaking through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.